49ers haven't been the only one in off-season mode. Uh, welcome back to, if you forgot about us, another episode of the 49ers Noir Podcast. Uh, as always, this is still Zach, and with me is still Will. Will, how has your off-season been? Uh, my off-season has had some ups and downs to it. It's been, you know, a little crazy at times. We've had some highs. We bought a house. We've moved in. We're getting ourselves settled. We had some downs. We had to put our uh, our old 13 year old dog down in uh in may and you know things have been kind of a whirlwind between uh between those two kind of highs and lows of our life yeah it's uh you know thank you for sharing that of course i'm sorry for for your loss it's never easy to to you know have to say goodbye to your best friend like that so it's uh it's been a, a bit since we've we've chatted about the 49ers, but you know there hasn't been too much news to really discuss. Um, there is one piece of news that did come out today, right before recording. So thank you to Fred Warner for that, for giving us at least something to mention. Uh, but the 49ers have the best linebacker in football locked in through the 2026 season signing Fred Warner to a five-year, $95 million contract with, I believe it was $40.5 million of that guaranteed money. Uh, so Fred Warner now becomes the highest-paid uh, linebacker in the NFL, at least for the time being. I'm sure someone will beat that mark coming up here soon. Uh, but for right now, uh, highest-paid linebacker. What are your thoughts on that contract there? I really love it. I think... The money is in line with what he brings to the team, both on the field and in the locker room. And anytime you have a player of his caliber at his age, he's only 24 years old, getting him locked up sooner than later, getting everything smoothed out. You've got, you know, other contracts that are going to be coming up. We've got Nick Bosa on the horizon, Debo Samuel. We've got those guys to worry about. So when you've got an all pro linebacker, only 24 years old, Get him locked up, get it done. And I think for both sides, it's a really good deal. Like you said, $40.5 million guaranteed. That's second to CJ Mosley. He got uh, $51 million from the Jets, but his $19 million average annual surpasses Bobby Wagner for the highest. So he's kind of, you know, kind of screwing that line. He's making the most annual, second most guaranteed. So I think that's right in line with where he where he should. Where he what he should be making considering his talent and what he brings to the field. Yeah, I mean, knock on wood, he's been probably the most durable player for the 49ers on defense uh, over the past couple of seasons. And he has shown already in his young career that he is 
probably the best coverage linebacker in the NFL. With uh, with where the NFL is going nowadays, that's that's what you want out of your middle linebacker. Uh, so absolutely great job getting him in. Get it done before training camp starts. Avoid all of the avoid all the questions. You know when are they going to sign Fred Warner? Like those were obviously going to come back when the team was all together and the reporters are seeing the coaches and John Lynch every day. Get it taken care of now. Out of sight, out of mind. They can go on with the season now. Yeah, and like you said, what he does in today's NFL with coverage, he is he's so valuable. We've seen him cover running backs out of the backfield. We've seen him on linebackers, obviously. We've seen him on wide receivers. He His game is so encompassing that he's not that type of player that needs to be pulled off the field depending on what the offense is doing, and that is going to be such a valuable piece for D'Amico Ryans in his first season as defensive coordinator to have somebody in the middle of his defense that's so valuable, so versatile, and is already establishing himself as one of the best in the NFL at his position. Yeah, uh, I I don't think there's a ton else to really talk about with with Fred Warner. We all know how good of a player he is. We all know the type of guy he is in that locker room, how well-respected he is. The money, it's, you know, you're going to have to sign your big-name piece. It is what it is. Someone was going to pay Fred Warner that money. I'm happy it's the 49ers. Um but I think we can get on to the rest of our show, which we're going to do something a little bit different for you here today. Uh, so it was probably a week or two ago, uh, Bleacher Report tweeted something out asking people for their favorite one-hit wonders. Um, you know, guys like Peyton Hillis, guys who, you know, might have been in the league for a few seasons or for a long time, but they just had that one season that was completely above and beyond everything else. So I got the idea with Will, hey, let's do our favorite 49ers one-hit wonders. So these are our favorite guys, not necessarily the guys who had that, that best single season, um, but guys who either only played for the team for one year or guys that played for multiple seasons but had one year that was so much better than every other year that they played with the team uh, that y- you kind of have to recognize that. And their, their star burned bright but it burned quick. Um, And again, these aren't necessarily the absolute best ones. Some of these guys are just ones that are our favorites or a little bit more recent. Uh, So any initial thoughts before we, uh, before we jump into this, this, my first initial thought is uh, you mentioned that Peyton Hillis and I just remembered how much of a seething hatred I had for that guy. And I really can't, (laughs) I really can't put my finger on why, but did I you lose just, a fantasy championship to him? No, it had nothing. It had nothing to do with fantasy football. It just, I think he had that big season. He just seemed like an idiot, and then he came. I remember him coming out to the to the draft the next season, and I think he had like a like a black suit on with a black undershirt, and it was like unbuttoned to the middle of his chest with like no undershirt or anything on. And I just thought, what what a douche this guy is. <laughs> <laughs> I just always, I, I really, I just always hated Peyton Hill. So the fact that you brought his name up just, oh, that was funny. Um, and the second part was, you know, looking back on some of these players that have played for the Niners and had, had kind of their one year with them, their one significant season with them. It's really a trip down memory lane, seeing some of these names come back and you kind of forget that they had some significant seasons with the 49ers. And then also it just reminds you that, that 
and this is kind of a little philosophical or whatever, that success in the NFL is so fleeting that you can come in, you can have a fantastic 16 game season, have a great playoff. And then it's just over, you know, and, and some guys only get their one chance or one season or their, or their few games. And that's, and that's all they've got really a moment to think like, man, this, these guys had their time. And now, you know, most of the guys we're going to talk about are long out of the NFL and for just that little, that little fraction of the time, they were, they were really a name that people knew and, and contributing to this gigantic thing that we all love the NFL. Yeah. Very well said. Uh, so I think just to get this thing started, there is one guy that, you know, when you, you mentioned something like this, only played one season with the 49ers or, you know, played a few seasons, but had one season that was so much better than the rest. There's one guy that I think every single 49er fan would think of, and that's Jimmy Garoppolo, 2019. Just kidding. Just kidding, everybody. Just kidding. Um, I, I didn't tell you about that one, Will. I didn't tell you about that. Yeah. Pretty yeah, but you're, pro- you're probably not far off. <laughs> uh, no, the, the real one, um, Deion Sanders, 1994, um, came in from the Atlanta Falcons, only signed a one-year deal with San Francisco, and then left Dallas the following season. But, I mean, that one season with San Francisco was amazing. Uh, he had six interceptions, three of which he returned for touchdowns. He was a lockdown corner the entire year. He led that defense to be one of the top in the league, uh, ended up going to the Super Bowl where the 49ers just absolutely demolished the Chargers. It was probably one of the single best defensive seasons of any player in NFL history. Um, and that was the only season that he played in San Francisco. So uh, it, it, it's kind of hard to start this list with anybody other than Dion. Yeah, he was, the Niners had ran up against the Cowboys in the NFC Championship game and just couldn't get over the hump. And he was that one player that they needed, I think not only on the field, because he was able to, you know, people look back and they think about, Michael Irvin, how successful he was as a, as a receiver for the Cowboys. But the Niners really put in that NFC championship game, put Dion on um, Alvin Harper more and then rolled the rest of the secondary towards Michael Irvin. So he was able, Dion was able to, to completely take away half the field and let the Niners kind of do whatever they wanted to on the other half of the field against uh, Michael Irvin. And that was, that was so valuable in that NFC championship game. But aside from what he brought to him on the field, he brought that primetime swagger to a team that was that was kind of missing it. You know, they had Steve Young. They had some conservative leaders on the team, right? They had Steve Young. They had Jerry Rice. They had um, uh, Gary Plummer on defense. They had Merton Hanks. They had guys who, you know, Merton Hanks had the chicken dance, but they didn't have guys that really had that swagger and had that kind of brashness on the field. And when Dion came in, he was that guy that really puffed up his chest, got the team going, and really infused a lot of bravado onto that team, both on offense and on defense. And I think that was just a huge piece that the team was missing from a locker room standpoint. Uh, Shockingly, in Dion's long and illustrious career, this was the only season where he won Defensive Player of the Year. Um, And then... 
it was also the only year he got some MVP votes, like some actual just overall MVP votes. Uh, that's how good of a defensive season this guy had in 1994. And and you're right, that that swagger is unlike any other probably in NFL history, maybe maybe up there with T.O. Uh, yeah, both I think of- so. And, and I remember being, I'm, I grew up in the Bay Area. I'm a Bay Area fan. Dion, I can look at Dion signing with the Niners that season. And the equivalent is, you know, Dion signs with the Niners. Barry Bonds comes over from the Pirates, signs with the Giants. And then Kevin Durant comes over from Oklahoma City and signs with the Warriors. And it's like, when your team can go out and pursue the preeminent free agent that is that is really a franchise-altering player and successfully bring them in. I mean, Durant played a couple of years, you know, played like three years with the, with the Warriors. Um, Bonds, Dion only had that sole season. But it's just such an infusion to the area, to the fan base, to the team, when a team can go out and pluck really the best player in the NFL or what they in, in any sport and what they do and plug them into the team. And I remember vividly his press conference with Seifert and with Carmen Policy. And then, you know, I remember it the same way as Barry Bonds' press conference as Kevin Durant's press conference. It was it was a, a seminal moment in my life when Deion Sanders signed for the 49ers. And, you know, even just looking at the remainder of his career, you know, he had probably or he did have basically a quarter of his interception return yards was in that one uh, was in that one season. Um, he had. Uh, let me let me get a calculator out. Do the math. Eleven uh, percent of his career interceptions were in that one season. You know, for a guy that played in the NFL for fourteen seasons, like that just shows even to his standard how much better that one season was. So not only was this probably the best defensive you know season we've seen for 49ers players like this is his probably best season in the nfl too like this was just one of the all-time great seasons for any player uh had to start the list off there yeah absolutely i remember when they signed him my first thought was they're winning the super bowl this year there wasn't for whatever reason there wasn't any doubt in my mind they had that press conference and i remember thinking they're winning the Super Bowl. They're beating the Cowboys. It's going to be them and the Cowboys in the NFC Championship game. They're beating the Cowboys. Doesn't matter who's in the AFC. The Niners just won the Super Bowl on that free agent signing. I was five, so I can't say I really recall it all that well. Um, but, uh, I, was, I, I was in high school. Thanks. <laughs> I'll, I'll trust your judgment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you were in high school and they signed Dion, I was in the middle of kindergarten, just starting it. So uh, th- there you go. Uh, who, who's on next up on your list of guys that you want to mention? My list, my list is this guy was a, a one-year player with the Niner and Niners, and he was more, I'm basing his one-year wonder status more off of projection. And I think what he was expected to be than what he ended up being, but I'm going with, uh, running back Glenn coffee out of the university of Alabama, the, the Niners drafted him in 2009. He was a third-round pick. He was coming off of an all-SEC selection as a running back. He split time with Mark Ingram in the backfield with uh, Alabama. 
he rushed for 1,383 yards at Alabama. So there was some kind of expectation that maybe he was going to come into the Niners and be the guy that give, would give Frank Gore a break. They'd split some carries, maybe become the heir apparent behind Frank Gore. Because um, I don't think anybody expected Frank Gore's longevity to be what it is. And then he comes in rookie season, not spectacular, 226, yard rush, 226 yards rushing, excuse me, and one touchdown. And then right before training camp, abruptly announces his retirement, said his heart wasn't in it anymore. He went back to the University of Alabama to pursue his degree. And, and that was the end of the Glenn Coffee era in San Francisco. Now, I think maybe the most impressive thing about Glenn Coffee is looking at his pro football reference page. I had no idea that his full name was Glenwood Razim Coffee. That is a that is a fantastic name, and I would have been okay with the 49ers drafting him in the first or second round uh, if I had no, known that that was yeah. Just ba- based on that name, you know, that is the name of an elite player. Um, I I think the other thing that you know isn't always thought of with Glenn Coffee. He probably would have provided kind of a different element to the 49ers offense too that they didn't really have even through those Harbaugh years. And that's a receiver out of the backfield. You know, yeah, he had the 83 rushes, 226 yards, but in that one season, in only two starts, he had 11 catches too. Like this was an element that they wanted him to bring to the offense and pairing him with Frank Gore, you know, as good as Frank Gore is, he has never really been that much of a receiver. Um, I think that Coffee really would have brought a different element to that offense that would have maybe completed it um, and, you know, made it a much better offense in those early Harbaugh years. I think so. And I think when Glenn Coffee gets talked about now, I think we forget the few years after he retired when he went back to school and there's kind of, when he gets brought up, it's like, oh, he left the NFL to go into the military, but he didn't, he didn't end up enlisting until 2013. So there was about a, a three-year stretch there after he had retired before he got into the military, but then he served four years in the United States Army, tried to make, I think just before that, he tried to make a comeback and it just, oh no, I guess in 2017, he tried to make a comeback and the Niners still owned his rights. They, they released him and everything. And he just never caught on with anybody. I think that, you know, I talked about that kind of fleeting chance that at, success in the NFL and, and he had kind of given his up, but, you know, I remember thinking, you know, he's really going to be that guy that kind of like pushes Frank Gore. They, they turn into kind of a two head monster, like I said, provide some, some receiving work out of the backfield and kind of diversifies the, the offense at the time. And, and just like you said, in, in 2010, his, his heart just wasn't in it. Didn't want to play football anymore. I want to stick with the running back theme for now. Um, and this was a guy who spent more time in the NFL than just one season. Uh, he was drafted uh, by the Seattle Seahawks, uh, spent his first two seasons with there, with them, and then was... I'm not seeing exactly what happened, but he was out of the NFL for a couple of years. Um, so he played with them in 1990 and 1991, and then he signed with the 49ers in 1994. And then 1995 was his one season where he just went insane. And that's Derek Laville. Um, he, that was the only year that he started 16 games, started double-digit games. He started six games for 49ers in 96, but then he went on to Denver. 
Uh, but in that one season, in 1995, I had no idea that his stats were this impressive, probably because I was only six at the time, doing the math from when I was five with Dion. Uh, in that one season, 95, 723 rushing yards and 10 touchdowns, but also 87 catches for 662 yards. So the guy had uh, 1,385 yards from scrimmage in that one season. Like that is a very, very good season for an NFL running back. Uh, and then he just disappeared again. Uh Started six games in 96, only had 229 yards rushing and 138 receiving. Went on to Denver, where he was in the mid-hundreds to low-200s the rest of his career. And then he was done. Uh, but that one season, 1995, that was, uh, that was something I was surprised about going through and uh, reliving all of this. Yeah, I don't remember his 95 season being that successful. I remember... Ricky Waters leaving, signing a contract with Philadelphia, and then Lavelle being the guy to step in and become the Niners starting running back after 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 Waters had left. I don't remember that season being anywhere near that successful, 1,500 yards total. Um, but I, yeah, and then I just remember him kind of fading away. All of a sudden he was gone. And it was really interesting that when you mentioned his name before we started recording that you said, and I was like, oh, man, Derek Lavelle. Like, yeah, I had forgotten about that guy. And I think he was, a, he was a guy that the team really viewed as someone that could carry the carry the weight of being a lead running back and bring some guys in behind him and kind of see where his career would go. And he just wasn't able to, uh, wasn't able to sustain that over the, over the remainder of his career. Yeah, now, now that I, uh, I did look this up before that, jump between 1991 and 1994 where he had a couple of seasons outside the nfl um so i'm just uh oh well that's uh that's great he apparently was recently uh sentenced to 15 months in prison um (laughs) i just saw this on the bottom of his wikipedia page uh so uh yeah looking uh it doesn't really say why he had those couple of seasons um, absent. Uh, maybe he had some legal issues there as well. Um, oh, oh yeah, wow. International drug trafficking, sports gambling, and money laundering um, in mm-hmm. 2016. Um, it included making threats to debtors such as showing them beheaded, beheading videos. Okay. Yeah, that, kind of, that that part really came out of the blue for me too when I looked at his Wikipedia page. Okay, well, uh, Derek Lavelle, uh, <laughs> you're certainly a guy. Um, <laughs> Talk about diversity. Uh, yeah, I, I I don't know where to go with this, so I'm just gonna toss it back to you and uh, let you go with your next guy. Where to go? Where to go with the next name? Let's pretend like let's pretend like uh, Derek Lavelle's 2016 never happened. I mean, he was a one-hit wonder there, too. Yeah. So my next player, to me, really encapsulates what I feel is the worst offseason in 49er history. So we're going to go back. We're going to think about uh, the Niners go 8-8, and right? Jim Harbaugh leaves 
goes to the university. Brandon Gordon departs as a free agent. Patrick Willis announces his retirement. Justin Smith announces his retirement. But there's a young player on the team that showed such promise as rookies that it kind of holds, kind of like holds me together a little bit. Like we've got this guy we can lean on. And then Chris Borland announces his retirement due to concerns from head injuries. Mm. Wisconsin linebacker, Niners drafted him in the third round, uh, 77th overall. He had had a fantastic rookie season filling in for Willis when Willis was going through all of his injury stuff. Um, I remembered him being really, really good. I think I've tried to block out some of the memories of Chris Borland because he was so good and it was like such a letdown that he retired. But I mean, 14 games played, eight starts, 84 tackles, 23 assists. He had two interceptions, a fumble recovery. In week 10 versus New Orleans, 17 tackles. He was defensive rookie of the week. The next week against the Giants, 13 tackles, two interceptions, defensive player of the week for the NFL. And then in November of that year, he wins NFL defensive rookie of the year. And he seemed like they were going to be able to pair him with Navarro Bowman going forward after Willis's retirement and not miss a beat in the middle of the field. And then his was just, you kind of expected Justin Smith to retire. Willis was a little bit rough, but you can kind of see a little bit of the writing on the wall with all of his injuries. But Borland retiring was just such a gut punch because it came out of nowhere. And he'd been so good. Yeah, that one that one really hurt because you're you're absolutely right. That it was a dreadful offseason. You know, it seems like there was just this mass exodus of all of the th- people and players that we had spent the past couple of seasons like just fawning over, being so happy that they were there. We were in such a low point from 2003, basically, all the way until 2010. And then had those couple of really strong seasons in there. You thought that this might be the turning point that things could start coming back together. And then just another gut punch. Uh, You know, I never want to rag on anybody for, you know, leaving the game for the reasons that he did. You know, head injuries are obviously a very scary thing. And if he didn't want to submit himself to year after year of having to deal with those, because I believe he had a concussion or two while he was at Wisconsin, and then he was put on the IR um, in late in the 2014 season for a, another head injury. Um, you know, it it's understandable that he would want to do that, but... That one season, man, yeah, just, you never really think that you can replace a guy like Patrick Willis, but he made you think, maybe it's not going to be too terrible of a loss. You know, maybe that it'll be something where they only take a tiny bit of a step back, you know, give him another couple seasons, get even better, get even more cerebral, get even, you know, learn the playbook and learn NFL offenses even more. And this guy's just going to, you know, be fantastic. And then it just, it never was, you know, he would have only been what, probably 31, 32 coming into the season. So he probably would Uh, still be a player. Yeah. Yeah. So he would be a player that they would have, you know, potentially still could be you know it would have shifted from Borland and Bowman to 
Borland and Warner. You know, you would have kept that linebacker duo going, but just, uh, yeah, that was that was a rough one for sure. Yeah, and I don't I don't fault him at all for retiring. I mean, there's there's so much talk about head injuries and and the evidence to it, and we've seen things, you know, CTE results and the effects it has on players and, you know, the older guys, like I remember Mike Webster committing suicide and he'd had, um, he was a center for the Steelers in the seventies. He'd had a bunch of concussions and then the whole Aaron Hernandez thing and, and his, his brain afterwards and, and junior Seau and those guys. And it's, it's horrible. So I, I would never fault a player for retiring for their own health, whether it be a head injury, knee injury, whatever it is, they've got to take care of themselves. But just if you could, if he had played, I mean, think of the line, the linebacker line of the 49ers. To KO Spikes, to Patrick Willis, to Navarro Bowman, to Chris Borland, to Fred Warner. What what a line of linebackers that would have been for any NFL team to be able to put jerseys on those guys in that order and get that quality of play from players consistently in and out at the same position group. I mean, that's that would have just been a remarkable thing to watch. Yeah, I, uh, that, that was definitely a good one. It was one that I had on my list. Um, it, it's a shame, but like you said, you, you got to take care of yourself. Um, next name on my list. This is a guy who actually came out of retirement for uh, one last go at uh, trying to get the elusive ring that he he never was able to get while he was a player um or at least i'm pretty sure he he never won one when he was in new england for those couple of seasons um he is a hall of fame wide receiver uh he is often confused as being the best wide receiver of all time um he is certainly not that but he's a solid number two or three and I'm talking about Randy Moss uh, coming out of retirement for that one 2012 season. 49ers made a run for the Super Bowl with him, uh, you know, playing a, you know, third fiddle kind of role. Uh, he certainly did decently. Uh, 434 receiving yards. He had three touchdowns. Um, he he was a solid contributor to that team, and they ended up coming up just a little bit short. Uh, he never got that ring. He ended up retiring again after that 2012 season. But, you know, it, it was really exciting seeing Randy Moss in the 49ers uniform, even if it wasn't, you know, peak, you know, 2000, 2002, 2003 Randy Moss. Yeah, you definitely knew when he signed, you definitely knew you weren't going to get prime Randy Moss. But, he was. He still had the speed. He still had the athleticism. He, like you said, he was going to be kind of third fiddle, so they weren't going to be running a ton of stuff his way. They weren't going to be running him into the ground or anything. So there was the hope that he was going to be that kind of piece in the passing game that really gets them over the edge. You pair him with guys like Crabtree and Vernon Davis, and he can be that guy right, right behind those guys to really push them and really give a defense – one more one more player that they have to worry about and he did have a productive season I mean I remember him having a really like a really impressive touchdown I think it was against Arizona where he made a couple guys miss 
had a long run out, ran a couple guys. But yeah, they just came up a little bit short. He just wasn't the Randy Moss of old. And that was kind of just the way it went. But I agree with you. He is oftentimes mistaken as the greatest wide receiver of all time. He's obviously not. He's Jerry Rice. That's Jerry Rice. I think where I will give Moss the the tip of the cap over Rice too, and I think this is where people kind of sometimes get things messed up. I think he is probably the most physically gifted wide receiver that's ever played between the way he was able to jump, his body control, his speed, both his long speed and his breakaway speed. I think he was definitely the most physically gifted wide receiver. He was not the greatest, but he's probably the best athlete that's ever played wide receiver. And it was fun. For one season, it was fun seeing him in, an, in a 49er uniform and seeing what he could do. Unfortunately, it just wasn't. He wasn't the, the Randy Mossable, but that's the way it goes. Now, to be fair to him, he almost had as good of a Super Bowl in 2012 as he did in 2007 with the Patriots. Uh, but that was more due to the 2007 Super Bowl, him just not being all that productive, uh, as opposed to him lighting it on fire and for, with his two catches for 41 yards in the 2012 Super Bowl. Uh, but he did only have five catches for 62 yards and a touchdown in 2007, so not that far off. No, not that, not that bad. <laughs> the guy can play, that's for sure. All right, uh, who who do you got next? My next, I have got. We're we're going to be a little bit more recent here. Is I've got a guy the Niners traded up to get in 2018, traded up into the second round and selected a wide receiver Dante Pettis with the 44th overall pick. Now, yeah, that still stings that they traded up for that guy. Um, So Pettis was coming out of UW, had been really productive as a wide receiver. Obviously, he's there was all the news about him being the um, the NCAA career punt return touchdown leader. He has nine. He was an All-American in 2017, All-Pac-12 in 2017. So he was definitely a guy that you felt could play and felt that he was going to be kind of the next wide receiver that Shanahan was going to get, that he was going to get, be able to get a bunch out of, right? Really good route, run, route runner. He was good in short space. You thought that he was going to be the guy. And that rookie season, it seemed like he was on the way, right? 12 games played, seven games started, 27 receptions, 467 yards, five touchdowns. So project that out over a 16-game season. You're looking, you know, neighborhood of 800 yards, maybe – seven, eight touchdowns. And you think as a rookie, those numbers would have been incredible. Then he's going to step into it in 2019, presumably with Jimmy Garoppolo coming back from his knee injury. So remember in 2018, those numbers were with Nick Mullins and CJ Beathard, both guys, incredible quarterbacks in their own right. They were able, they were able to do, they were able to do great things for the 49ers, but Pettis was able to get some production out of those two guys. And you think moving in with Garoppolo, he's really going to take the stride. Well, then his next season and a half with San Francisco, 11 catches, 109 yards, two touchdowns. Never was never productive again. And that was why I've got him as my one year wonder, right? Really great rookie season. You expect to get a bunch out of him, And then it just never happened. And now he's now he's with the giants and it still doesn't look like, I still don't think he's going to do much with the Giants. He just seems like a guy that, for whatever reason, for those those 12 games in 2018, he kind of caught lightning in a bottle. I just don't think he's going to be 
he's going to be a productive wide receiver in the NFL again. Maybe, maybe I'll be wrong, but that's, I just don't see it. Yeah. I, I think that even in that 2019 season, he had, he did have one moment, you know, the game winner against Pittsburgh. Um, yeah. But, and that was early enough in the season that you were like, oh, maybe this is it. Maybe this is when the, Jimmy starts trusting Dante Pettis. This is when they, everything's going to start to get going. And that I don't think he really looked at Dante Pettis much the rest of the season. Um, no, it, I remember him getting one touchdown against Arizona on that, the, the October, the game on October, the Thursday night game on, on Halloween. But it's like, oh, I mean, that's, yeah. That's I, it. I, that's, all, that's all I remember. Yep. It's, uh, it's an unfortunate reality that that was a miss. Um, thankfully, when I was uh, trying to decide which wide receiver I was going to get fully behind in the 2019 season, uh, you know, there's Dante Pettis, but you remember me in the draft process that year. I loved me some Debo. I wasn't yep. sure which one I wanted to throw my full support behind. And uh, thankfully, I chose Debo. But, who, yeah, that, that 2018 season, we really thought we had something with him. And then just nothing. Yeah, I mean, I was at, I was living in Seattle at the time. I went to the game when the Niners came, came up the coast to Seattle. And he had, I think he had two touchdowns. He had like a 75-yard touchdown where he just, you know, made a move, ran away from some guys. And I just remember thinking like, dude, this guy's a stud. Like the Niners, when, when Garoppolo comes back and they bring, you know, they bring in a wide receiver opposite Pettis, like this, this offense is really, you know, and then they got Kittle. This offense is really going to be moving. And then it just seemed like, and I'm not, I'm not one of those guys that's going to talk about, you know, players that put up workout videos on Instagram. I, that stuff doesn't mean shit to me. But it just seemed like Pettis, and I could be 100% wrong on this, it just seems like Pettis is just kind of like, he's, he comes across with that, with that air that like, I'm in the NFL, I've made it. And he doesn't seem like he's, I don't know, I guess I, maybe I am that guy that wants to see workout videos on Instagram, but he just seems like <laughs> he isn't putting in the work. Like he was always like the first guy to celebrate with a teammate when they, when they did something well or like do a little dance with them or something. But it's like, dude, how about you do something that warrants a dance instead of coming over and just like, like being the entourage for the guy that just did something good. Like, why don't you try to like contribute to the team in your own way? You know, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm an old fogey, but there was just always something about Pettis, I guess in that 2019 season, he kind of just came in with a, with an air. I felt that like, all right, I'm here. Like I'm, I'm the number one wide receiver. Like, let's do this. I don't know. Yeah, I think the best thing that he did in uh, that George Kittle record-breaking season was he was probably George Kittle's biggest cheerleader. He was the one that, yeah, whenever George Kittle would get the first down, Dante Pettis would run up and do the little, you know, little little dip thing right right along with him. Yeah. Uh, almost to the point where it's like, move out of the way. I want to see George do it, not you. Yeah. Uh, Oh, what could have been with Dante Pettis? Uh, Dude, all the talent in the world, yeah. Well, let's finish up with the uh, the wide receivers with the next name on my list. Uh, this was a guy who uh, started off his career with another hated rival in Dallas. Uh, moved around a couple of times, though. Uh, he ended up moving to Cleveland for a couple of, like, season and a half um, in his third year and then played for his fourth year in Cleveland, and then came to San Francisco with a whole lot of promise. Uh, we, we thought, okay, 49ers managed to land 
their new number one wide receiver for a long time. Um, unfortunately, the team was not that good that year. It was, I believe it was Alex Smith's rookie year that that he came in. Uh, Antonio Bryant, uh, playing with San Francisco, had 13 games started, had only 40 catches, but for 733 yards and three touchdowns. Uh, it, it was kind of an underwhelming time, given where the 49ers were in 2005, uh, that you know coming off that Dennis Erickson year coming into you know having a little bit more hope with Alex Smith at quarterback hoping that he was going to you know be the savior of the franchise now you get him a top weapon in Antonio Bryant coming off of a 1000 yard season with Cleveland and then it just it, it was fine but the rest of the 49ers team it was just a whole mess for everybody that year. So uh, it never materialized into a full, you know, career with San Francisco. He spent 2007 out of the league, and then 2008, 2009, he finished up his career with Tampa. Yeah, and when when the Niners brought in Bryant, you really thought he was going to be kind of the new number one wide receiver. They had Arnez Battle on the other side. So the thought was he was going to be that guy to kind of step in. He'd had some productive seasons earlier in his career. And you're really not like huge seasons, but he had a thousand yards in, I want to say it was 2005, the year before in Cleveland. So you thought he could come in, kind of be that stabilizing force in the passing game with a young quarterback in Alex Smith. Like I said, he had a decent season, you know, 733 yards, average 18.3 yards, but just didn't do enough to keep himself there in San Francisco. And then amazingly enough, you know, we're talking about when you wonders, he moves on to Tampa Bay the next season and has 1,248 yards and seven touchdowns. So really San Francisco at that time, 2006, was just not a place, unfortunately, where offensive players would, would really flourish even bringing in someone that was as as talented as Antonio Bryant, he just wasn't going to be that type of player that they needed. I think a lot of it, San Francisco was a rough spot at that time. I think a lot of it had to do with the coaching staff, your offensive coordinators and everything. And he unfortunately just wasn't able to put it together and and kind of carve out a niche in San Francisco's offense and and have a long career there. Yeah, that was the... uh... The, that first season, well, the only season, that, if I recall, of uh, Norv Turner. So I was thinking, oh, Norv Turner's going to come in and fix that offense, tutor Alex Smith up real good. And uh, the only thing he did was Frank Gore had an amazing season in 2006. 1,695 rushing yards, uh, 61 catches for 485 yards. That, that man was a beast. Uh, God, I miss old Frank Gore. Yeah, for for all these one year wonders that we're talking about, all all of what could have been, you know, the the, the theme for most of, for most of our selections has been Frank Gore in the background, still kind of being Frank Gore, and it just it just gives you an idea how the the longevity of his career and how good he's been. It's not just he's not that guy that's just been around for twenty years and getting one hundred fifty two hundred yards of pop. Like he's been around forever and has just been a really really good top tier running back for for the majority of his career 
Ah, oh, Frankie. All right. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I know you've got one last name on your list. This is a little might be a little controversial for uh, for some of you listening. So I, I want to give you adequate enough time to uh, to mention this last name of yours. So this is so. This may not be a very popular pick, but I think when you when you look at what was done on the field, I think you can say this guy was a one year wonder for the 49ers. And my last pick is cornerback Richard Sherman. Mm. You know, he came as a free agent in 2018 from from Seattle, signed that three year deal. Very famously was his was his own agent, got that deal worked out, really bet on himself um, with his deal, with the money and, and the structure of it and everything. 2018, 14 games played, 14 games started. He had 30, 30 tackles, didn't have an interception, and he just seemed off. He wasn't all the way back from that Achilles injury he had suffered in 2017 in San Francisco. There was that really famous clip at, um, I don't think, it, I can't remember if it was training camp or if it was OTAs, where uh, Marquise Goodwin just dusted him. And there was that thought that, oh, God, Sherman's lost it. He doesn't have any speed anymore. Not that he ever did. You know, he was more known for his smarts than his speed. But he had had enough speed to kind of keep himself keep himself relevant, obviously. He was one of the best cornerbacks in the NFL. But you just saw that and thought, well, it's done. He doesn't have the speed. He can't do it. And he just never looked comfortable in that, off, in that defense. And then he comes back, 2019, 15 games, 61 tackles, three interceptions, takes one back for a touchdown, ends up second team, uh, second team all pro, goes to the Pro Bowl, goes to the, you know, team goes to the Super Bowl. He does at one point in the Super Bowl get dusted. I can't remember if it was Tariq Hill or if it was Michael Hartman, but one of them got behind him and really showed once again his lack of, of top end speed at his age. And then last season he, and he comes back and he's suffering – Lower leg injuries again, reoccurring injuries, keeping him off the field. Five games played, 18 tackles, did have an interception, but really just clearly is not the Richard Sherman of old. So I think between those three years, yes, he may have played in 14 games and 15 games those first two seasons, but really 2019 was the year that was the year that he contributed and the year that he was really there on the field as kind of the Richard Sherman that we expected San Francisco to sign coming from Seattle. So that's why I've got him as my one year wonder. Yeah. You know, looking at, uh, you know, the advanced metric that pro football reference has approximate value, um, that 2019 season was far and above what he was worth in 2018 and 2020. Um, even better than some of his seasons in Seattle. Um, you know, he was coming off that Achilles injury his last year in Seattle. He only played nine games there. Um, you were wondering how he was going to come back from that. You, Like you said, he was always known for his smarts rather than his athleticism. So you didn't know if, oh, well, it's going to be fine because he wasn't fast anyways, or if it was, okay, now he's like not even serviceable because of how slow he is. And I think there was plenty of reason to worry after that 2018 season. Was he going to be a serviceable player ever again? Um, but 2019, you're right. He came back, had a fantastic year. Uh, really, really was the cornerstone, you know, the, that veteran leadership that that defense needed uh, to make the steps that it did in that Super Bowl run. 
Uh, shame it, it didn't, you know, end the way we wanted it to. But, you know, that, that was... Richard Sherman played a very, very key role in that. So I, I will allow Richard Sherman being called a one-hit wonder for his time with the 49ers. And I, I will say, really with all the guys we've talked about for the most part, I mean, there are some that I'm indifferent to, like the Antonio Bryant's of the world. But for, for Sherman's three years with the 49ers, I've thoroughly enjoyed them. It may not have been the outcome that we wanted on the field, either in his play or at the end of the 2019 season. But I've thoroughly enjoyed Richard Sherman and what he has brought to the 49ers, both with the young players and the secondary, and then also him just as a 49er. Like it's been to be hated for so long as that villain in San Francisco, especially following the uh, the, the uh, NFC Championship game in, in January of 2014, to see him come over and play with the Niners and really embrace the see how the fans embraced him and how he embraced the the, the fans and kind of Lynch has talked so much about the culture and bringing the culture up from the team. He was, I feel like he was just a very significant part of that. So didn't work out the way we wanted to had a great 2019, but, but Richard Sherman has been, he's been a fun signing for the Niners. I've got a few more names that I want to throw out there. We don't spend a ton of time on these last few guys. Uh, Just, just thought they deserved to mention. Uh, Next one up for me was Lance Schulters. Uh, He was, he was a decent name. Uh, 49ers drafted him in the fourth round back in 1998. Uh, didn't really do much of anything notable in his rookie season. But that second year, 1999, he was on fire. He had six interceptions, returned one of them for a touchdown. Uh, had 64 tackles from the free safety spot, uh, including two for loss. Um, nine passes defended in total. He was he was just phenomenal in that 1999 season. Um, you know, it was at a time where they were still somewhat competitive, uh, and you thought that maybe he would be a return to that really strong secondary the 49ers were used to having. Um, that was his only Pro Bowl season, and yeah, he uh, left the 49ers after two more semi-unremarkable seasons uh he was he was decent in 2001 but then he went to tennessee and miami and atlanta afterwards and he just never really recaptured that magic that he had in that 1999 season yeah i loved i loved me some lance Schultz. he was i remember when he signed with tennessee even he did have kind of a lackluster last two years with san francisco but i remember him signing with Tennessee and thinking like, oh my God, who are they going to get to replace Lance Shoulders? Like, who's going to, who are they going to, who are they going to get to play safety now? And I, I was really a big Lance Shoulders fan. I liked him a lot. He would, it seemed like he, he was kind of Deshaun Golson before Deshaun Golson in that I remember him just laying lumber in, in the defensive secondary and really hitting people hard, but he was so much better, at least that, that, that one year, he was so much better in coverage than than somebody like Deshaun Golson was, where it was like he really brought those two things together, being like a big hard hitting safety and at the same time being being very reliable in coverage. And like I said, I remember when he left in Tennessee, just thinking like, "Oh shit! Like, what are they going to do on the back end now?" But yeah. <laughs> uh, next next guy on my list, uh, he didn't have quite the Deion Sanders impact, but it was still similar. Um, kind of hope that was associated with it because this is a guy who had a very 
long, successful, storied career in Pittsburgh. Uh, 10 seasons, 1987 to 1996. And he never had the flash or the swag that Dion had in those seasons, but he was still consistently one of the... He was almost an assassin on the field, just because he was a little bit quieter, he was a little bit more reserved, uh, but he was one of the best corners in the NFL during that those 10 years. And that's Rod Woodson uh, coming over to San Francisco in 1997 for one season that ended up being his last at the cornerback position before he moved on to Baltimore and switched to free safety. Um, probably, you know, a reason why he was a little bit slower, wasn't quite as successful in that one year in 97 as he was in the past. Um, didn't make the Pro Bowl or All-Pro or anything like that in that one season, but there was still a lot of excitement about Rod Woodson coming to the Bay. Yeah, I remember them signing him and being really excited about what he was going to bring to the offense. And you're right. It, I mean, he had clearly lost a step when he was with San Francisco, wasn't the cornerback that he was when he was with Pittsburgh. And I'd be curious, I don't know if it's ever been said, but I would be curious when he did go to Baltimore, if the move to safety was something that was kind of the brainchild of the coaching staff, or was it a move that he was making on his own? You know, we talked, we just talked about Sherman and there'd been kind of that unofficial dialogue with Sherman about, Oh, maybe I'll move to safety at the, you know, towards the end of my career or whatever. And obviously he's not, going to do that with the Niners now but I wonder if Rod Woodson ever had that thought in his head before heading to Baltimore and San Francisco kind of kind of said you know we really like like you to say a cornerback we think that's where you're going to be or if that was something he was still thinking hey I'm going to be a cornerback and then Baltimore thought you know we think better of it and we would like to move you to safety and kind of really rejuvenate his career there at that position so it would be interesting to see which way which way it was as far as that goes, but yeah, I remember just, yeah, he was kind of that year in San Francisco. He was just kind of like kind of a guy. He was just there. And then really, like I said, reinvigorated his, his career in, in Baltimore as a safety. Yeah. Wish, uh, wish they, the 49ers would have that foresight because he had some monster seasons at free safety. He made four straight pro bowls from 99 to 2002 uh, that last season in 2002, well, he had one more season in 2003 before he retired, but his age 37 season at free safety, he was Pro Bowl and first team All-Pro with the Oakland Raiders. Uh, eight interceptions, two of which he returned for a touchdown, and 82 tackles. Just a phenomenal season for any safety, let alone a guy who's 37 years old, back end of his career, and his second position. <laughs> it was... It was insane how well, well he did with that move to free safety, and it's unfortunate that uh, it took a, a little bit of a down year with the 49ers. And he was still pretty solid with that last year. He just wasn't the Rod Woodson we had hoped he would be. Yeah, and even now looking at his at his Wikipedia page, I didn't realize he led the NFL in interceptions in 99 and 2002. So his second year at free safety, or his second year at safety in Baltimore, and then his last year in Baltimore, led the NFL in interceptions twice. Yeah, he's uh, pretty good, uh, I would say. Uh, <laughs> um, next guy up on my list is uh, staying on the defensive side of the ball, but moving to the defensive line. Uh, this guy was drafted again by the 49ers. Um, 
forget where exactly he was. Oh, yeah, of course. He was drafted really high. He was first round, seventh overall by the 49ers uh, in 2001. Um, 2001, he came on, had a decent year. Second season, he broke out and had a monster year. And then he had three more seasons that were fine. Um, Talking about Andre Carter. Uh, In that 2002 season, age 23, he uh, had three forced fumbles, 12 and a half total sacks, and then 54 tackles, 14 of which were for loss. Just a phenomenal season in that second year. And you thought, okay, this guy, you know, this is a home run pick. This is going to be one of the best defensive linemen in the NFL for years to come. And then he just disappeared. Um, I mean, he had still had, you know, round six sacks uh, in 2003, but then jumped down to two sacks in 2004, had an injury, uh, four and a half in 2005, and then he went on to Washington and New England. Um, just... Uh, Never quite reached again that that magical year of 2002. I'll say Andre Carter is probably the only player on this list that bugs me that he wasn't more successful. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, spend a first round pick, seventh overall pick on a guy. you, You hope you get something more from him than one good season. But it's not even it's not even the draft pick status. It's like. He had all, oh, I don't know. This is going to make me sound like an asshole. He had all the physical tools. And it seemed like everything about him, big, fast, strong, high draft pick. Like, it should have been like the sky's the limit for Andre Carter. And then it was kind of like he was drafted in 2001. I want to say it was, I get the, I get, I have, I have blank spots in my mind from those coaching staffs because they were all so bad. But I want to say it was like, the Mike Nolan, like he was one of the first picks, I think, of Mike Nolan's. No, uh, Mike career. Nolan was a uh, 2005. He was the Alex Smith guy. I think this was still Mooch. Was it? Oh, it was Mooch. That's right. And it's just like this guy is going to, you expect this guy to be kind of the nudge into the next great the next great regime of the Niners, the next great, like, move, right? Mooch has come in. He, you know, Seifert wins the Super Bowl. Um, and then Mooch comes in right after that. And then Mooch is there for a few years. And they're always, like, right on the cusp, right? They've got Jeff Garcia. They've got uh, Rice at the ti- at the twilight of his career. And they're always, like, right there, but they're not. They're like a wild card team, it's, you know, second round of the playoffs, tight but they're not really like pushing the envelope all the way and then you get this high draft pick super athletic defensive end that you think is just going to create havoc and he has yeah he has the one good season he has 12 and a half sacks and then it's just just blah and it just he bugged like he just bugged me it was like either either get to producing or get off the field and I know that I know that makes you sound like such a such a dick, but there was just <laughs> Andre Carter just bugged me. Like Ken Juan Bomber, I can accept he just wasn't good at football. He just didn't want to be there. wasn't good at football. He was just a, he was just a, a shitty overall draft pick. Andre Carter was just like just like do something. You see that meme where it's like the 
the stick figure and he's like holding a stick and he's like poking something and it says do something. That was like, <laughs> that was like how I feel about Andre Carter. It's like do something. Uh, yeah, that that coaching staff: Mariucci, Greg Knapp as offensive coordinator, Jim Mora as defensive coordinator. We had Dan Quinn as a defensive quality control coach. Uh, that's something. Yeah. Yeah, but just I don't know. He man, he just that dude just. Just, just bugged me. Andre Carter just always bugged me. All right. Well, I've got three more names to go through uh, here quickly. And, you know, one of them, you know, uh, this next guy, th- this this is probably the most controversial of my picks because of potential one-year wonder status. Um, he did spend 16 seasons with San Francisco. Um <laughs> He is a pro football Hall of Famer. He does have his number retired with the 49ers. He is in the 49ers Ring of Honor, 49ers Hall of Fame. So it, it's it, it does feel a little, just a little blasphemous to call him a one-year wonder. But Mr. James Earl Johnson, Jimmy Johnson... Played from 1961 to 1976. Like I said, very illustrious career with San Francisco. As a cornerback, he played most of his most of his career there. Except his second year in the NFL, for some weird reason, they decided to move Jimmy Johnson to wide receiver. He had a, a fantastic rookie year, uh, 10 starts, 5 interceptions for 116 yards, especially in 1961. That's a fantastic season. And then they moved him to wide receiver, and he had another fantastic season, 34 catches for 627 yards and 4 touchdowns. Uh, that was 22nd in the NFL um, as a, in receiving yards. So I'm taking Jimmy Johnson as a receiver to be one of my one-hit wonders. Until we started talking about this, I had no idea that Jimmy Johnson had played wide receiver in the NFL. I was clueless, clueless to me. I'd known my dad had talked about him growing up. My dad had talked about him, about how great of a, of a cornerback he was. So when you, when you initially mentioned him, I thought, like, was my dad missing something? Like, what was going on? <laughs> um, which, which would not have been the first time that my dad was completely clueless about something. But I just thought, wow, like, Jimmy, really, Jimmy Johnson? Like, that name's so familiar. And then you mentioned that he played wide receiver. And it was just such, it was so shocking. I had no, like I said, I had no clue that he had played wide receiver in, in his second season, let alone the fact that he put up, put up pretty decent numbers. Well, you know, we were kind of before we started recording. I was just kind of looking at his at his Wikipedia profile, and he had, you know, against Detroit, he had 11 passes for 181 yards. He had an 80 yard game winning touchdown against Chicago at the time was the longest scoring pass in 49 in 49er history. You know, it's just really strange. And then I don't know. I'm I'm trying to look at his at his Pro Football Reference, and I think. They like completely moved. He wasn't even a two-way player that second season in '62. They took him off the field as a cornerback entirely. Yeah, and he just wide receiver. Like, 
like you said, you mentioned his rookie season, 10 games started, uh, five interceptions, 116 yards in interceptions, long interception return with 63 yards. To think that that production as a rookie, and then the coaching staff thinks, mm, let's move him to offense, is just really, it's shocking, to, well, to be honest, that it, it makes me wonder, it makes me very concerned for the coaching staff of the 1961-62 San Francisco 49ers. Long before my time, so I have no idea who it is. But that is just really surprising that they would have plucked a young player who seemed that productive on the defensive side of the ball and thought, you know what, let's make him into a wide receiver. You know, the only explanation that I could possibly have for why that happened was maybe he was so good. You know, the, the whole thing was always, oh, we're going to put you on defense because you can't catch. You know, the cornerbacks are just the wide receivers that can't catch. Maybe they're like, oh, five interceptions in his rookie year. This guy actually can catch. So let's move him over to uh, to wide receiver and see what he can do. My, I, I just don't know why they did that one season and then moved him right back to <laughs> defense again because he was he was productive both places. You know, it, it almost increases the legend of Jimmy Johnson knowing that he could have probably been a pro football hall of famer and a team hall of famer at either position given his first two seasons. And then they just decided to stick it, stick with defense for him for the long haul. Yeah, that's really, yeah, that's crazy. I never, I, like I said, I never, I never had any idea that he played wide receiver. So yeah, he definitely falls, you know, he falls in as, as a one-year wonder that just happened to just happened to play like 16 years and be in the hall of fame. Uh, and you can direct your anger at Red Hickey. Uh, he was he was the coach in that 1962 season. Uh, so you can send all of your hate mail to Red Hickey um, if he is still with us. Red RedHickey.com. Yes. Let's see. let's look at let's look up Red really quick while we got a minute. Red Hickey. Huh. As a coach, San Francisco 49ers, 58, 55 to 58 as an assistant head coach from 59 to 63. He also played end, it just says on his Wikipedia. I'm not sure if it's defensive or tight. It just says end. 6'2. This is this is the this is what oh he's still alive. No, he died. He died in 2006. He was 89. But oh. this was the NFL. You could play either tight end or defensive end in the 40s at six foot two 204 pounds oh geez that's that's i'm six feet 205 i could have been a defensive end in the nfl in the 40s <laughs> i would have ran circles around red hickey <laughs> yeah I mean, I mean he he's too lanky too easy to get up underneath him get under his pads you know you gotta gotta have that short six foot short long arm long arms to keep keep the uh, keep the offensive lineman away Head coaching record 27, 27, and one. Ah, so he's very Jeff Fisher esque. Yeah. He was only a head coach once, just for the Niners for those four years. Then he went to the Dallas Cowboys in the, as an offensive end coach. So I guess he must have been a tight end, whatever the hell an offensive end is. Can't imagine why he never got another shot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, last two names, uh, just uh, speed rounds. We've got. Jordan Reed from this past year. Um, that was it was fun to see him sign with San Francisco, come out of retirement for that one year. Um, he's retired again, and probably should be 
you know, we talked about the head injuries a little bit with Chris Borland. Had a decent season, uh, 26 catches for 231 yards and four touchdowns uh, in 10 total games. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, it, it was fun seeing a player of his status come to San Francisco this past year, but just not not the uh, not the production we were hoping for, which for a second tight end, I guess that's maybe all you were hoping for. Yeah. And I mean, Jordan Reed's that guy that you always, at least myself, the last few years, I've always thought like, oh, like, I hope he retires. Not because I dislike him or, or anything like that, but just you want guys to take care of their health. I can understand guys that just think, hey, I can keep doing this. Um, health be damned for whatever reason, or it's not going to happen to me. And, and they want to keep playing. Like, I get it. Um, but you, on a, on a human level, you want these guys to take care of themselves. So when the Niners signed him, there was that apprehension, like, Oh God, like, I don't want this guy. Like, I don't want his last concussion to be in a San Francisco 49er jersey, you know? And he did have a few injuries. Like you said, wasn't exactly the season that, that he wanted or the team wanted, I'm sure, but it was good to see him get on the field. Good to see him be productive. He obviously still has it as a player if he wants. Um, but he just, just didn't seem to work out. Now he's a free agent. Maybe the Niners bring him back. Maybe they don't, but, um, it was it was cool to see him. Like I, I was a big fan of his when he was in when he was in Washington. So it was it was fun to see him come over and play for the 49ers. It would have been great to see him paired up with Kittle for a full 16 game season where both of them are healthy, but just didn't work out that way. But we'll see we'll see what what the uh, what the rest of the the off season holds for him. And then the last name on my list, uh, former number one overall pick, um, also the first overall pick for an entire franchise. Um, a, a native of the uh, Bay Area um, from Bakersfield, California. I think that's near San Francisco somewhat. I, I don't know. I'm guessing here. Um, Is that fr- Bakersfield, Bakersfield like south by, like north of LA? Oh, uh, well, he's, he's a Californian at least. Uh, he did go to college at Fresno State. Um, and, and, you know, he's, he's a guy that I thought didn't get the full shot that he probably deserved in the NFL just because that offensive line for those first couple of years with the Houston Texans was so absolutely miserable that uh, I think he was the most sacked quarterback. Um, yeah, for in three of his five seasons with Houston, he was the most sacked quarterback, racking up totals of 76 sacks in 2002 49 sacks in 2004 and 68 sacks in 2005 he there's just no chance for this guy to be a successful quarterback uh but he managed to after spending some time in carolina and with the giants he found his way to san francisco in 2010 where his biggest contribution was making us realize maybe we don't want Carr. maybe we do have it pretty good with alex smith because uh David Carr, in his illustrious career with San Francisco, even after all of the We Want Carr chants when Alex Smith was struggling, he played in one game. He had five completions, 13 attempts, 67 yards, no touchdowns, and one interception. Uh, That is the legacy of one David Carr in San Francisco. I mean... What a what a waste, what a waste of, of a, what a waste of a first round pick of a, of a number one pick, and it's not like you said it's not his fault. Like the dude 
just got, when he was in Houston, he just got his ass handed to him by a terrible offensive line. And you got to feel for the guy. You have to feel bad for the guy. I mean, you talked about his sack numbers, right? 70, 70, the guy got sacked 76 times his rookie season. Like what, what is anybody going to learn as, as a, a franchise quarterback for an expansion team that is just constantly getting knocked down? His sack rate was 14.6% of his dropbacks. That is, that's absurd. The only season he didn't get sacked at least 41 times in Houston was his second year. He got sacked 15 times in 11 games. He only played, the poor dude only played 11 games. Still got sacked 15 times. I mean, he just, it, it's, it's, a, it's a bummer for him. And I think when he came to San Francisco, I mean, that is, that is his endearing legacy is we want car chance when Alex Smith was having a tough time and just, I think I have a, I think as a 49er fan, I have a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth from, from Carr only because of how, how shitty it was of the fan base to chant that when Alex Smith was having a hard time, when you knew Alex Smith was the better quarterback and he was just on a terrible team. I just remember thinking how unfair, like, look, and you pay your money, you can go boo, you can go do whatever you want, but like how, how like disrespectful to have a quarterback in there that's really busting his ass and is getting is getting beat all over the field and has a bad coaching staff and not a lot of talent around him and is just constantly cycling through offensive coordinators and can't get his feet set and then you have the audacity to chant we want Carr when that dude is awful and that's what yeah. I'll always remember about David Carr. Yep. Yeah. The. Uh... He made the rest of the fan base appreciate Alex Smith after they realized, you know what, that this car guy, we were wrong. Okay, we're sorry. We, 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 we don't want this guy to be our quarterback. That one game that where he only threw the ball 13 times, that was plenty. Um, that was 13 times too many. Although, fun fact, going back to his sack numbers – in the last year of his career with the Giants uh, in 2012, because he wasn't signed by anybody in 2011, uh, he played in two games, had four dropbacks, and was still sacked one one of them. <laughs> 25% sack rate, and then, then he just rode off into the sunset. <laughs> just, just, I hope that was just... I hope he got sacked and then just retired. Like that was the end of the game. It was the last play of the game. Like maybe the Washington game, you know, the Washington game in 20, in 2019 when they finished the game with a sack and then like all the players like slid in the water. Hopefully that was like the last fitting play of David Carr's career was just hike, sacked, you know, bell goes off, game is over, horn sounds, and that's just the end of him. Like that would have been the most fitting end to a career that you I could ever I think of. I actually hope it would It would be even better if it was like that guy in Buffalo who retired at halftime. He he drops back for a Hail Mary to end the half. He gets sacked and then he's like, you know what? I, I'm done with this. And then just, just walks out. It was uh, Vontae, Vontae Davis. It was Vernon Davis. Like, yeah, his that's it. That's it. <laughs> just bailed at halftime. That would have been, that is just, that would have been the, the chef kiss and David Carr's career. <sighs> All right. Well, uh, we are at almost an hour 15 now. So I, I think oh. this is probably a, 
a good enough walk down memory lane for people to enjoy for the final week before training camp starts. Uh, we're, we're getting close, and Will and I will be back this season. Uh, we'll be back next week to talk about the opening up of training camp. Uh, but we figured, you know, just to, to tide you over for a little bit longer, we're not going to do another 53-man projection. We're, we're not going to, you know, we, we'll want to give you something something different to digest and look back at some happier, sadder, funnier times uh, in the 49ers organization. So I, I hope we accomplished that today. Yeah, I think so. It was a good trip down memory lane. There was, there was, there were broken hearts. There was a little bit of love. There was some utter disgust. There were, there was talk of a of an international uh, drug trafficking ring and beheading video. So we really, we really hit everything this episode. So it was pretty good. Oh my god, I forgot about that. Uh... Oh, Derek Lavelle, never gonna forget about Derek Lavelle. <laughs> and he was my favorite find too. I was like. Oh my god, like, I, I remember this guy, I remember, like, NFL game day 96, like, oh, this guy was actually pretty good, and, like, just remembering that, like, oh, this is a great find, this is, like, this is, like, this is the reason why I wanted to do this episode, was to find a guy like Derek Laville, and then he's beheading people for, in drug trafficking rings, just, You're still looking for Derek like the California penal system. Oh, boy. <laughs> Law and Order 49ers edition. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, until next week when we're back to actually talk about football, actually get involved in the whole Trey Lance, Jimmy Garoppolo, uh, all that conversation. Until then, where can they find you, Will? You can find me occasionally on Twitter at wcabarras.com. And uh, you can find me next week on the podcast. We'll, we'll, we'll see where else I pop up between now and then. <laughs> you, you added a dot .com to your Twitter handle? I did that again. I did that once like last year. I don't know why I did that. I, it, even as I said it, I was like, that doesn't sound right. Okay, Boomer. Um, I'm old. Shout out to Red Hickey. He was a World War II veteran, by the way. <laughs> how was World War II, by the way? How, how, did, how, how was your day-to-day life affected by that? We lived, we lived on stamps. We lived on uh, <laughs> stamps. Uh, you can find me at P on Twitter. Um, probably when we get closer to the college football season, I'll get back to writing draft stuff for 49ers Hub and 49er Goldmine. Um, but until then, yeah, you can just find me on Twitter too. You can find me in Biloxi, Mississippi this weekend for vacation. Um, but other than that, just find me on Twitter. Um, and then, yeah, let's, let's go Niners. Uh, just uh, Niners of old. Niners of today, Niners of one year with the team, just all around. Go Niners, except for Derek Laville, now that I know what he's up to. (laughs) Yeah, go Niners.
Dada Big Maker. Big Maker. Big Maker.